verses 12. In the to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we can be here this morning together as a church. Thank you that we can read from your word and we can learn more about you and what you've done for us. And Father, I just pray that you quiet in our hearts, that you would allow us to rest in your presence and that we would be free from distraction, that the worries of the past week would fade away and that we could bring our hearts to focus on you. Father, I just pray for Andrew as he comes to speak, that you will be with him, that whatever he has to say, that you will be glorified. Um, give him the guidance that he needs to preach from this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Hannah. My iPad was speaking to me again. I need to figure out how that doesn't happen. Anyway, uh, good to see you all again this morning. Um, if you're new or visiting, um, we're kind of working our way through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Um, pretty much verse by verse, chapter by, by chapter, and we're continuing that this morning. Um, no doubt over the last few weeks, uh, you have thought to yourself or complained out loud, like me, about how expensive fuel is. Um, every, literally every time I fill up, I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. Um, and uh, maybe you've noticed that when you're uh, getting heating oil or buying gas for your house or whatever. Um, but one thing that I've noticed is that no matter how expensive the petrol gets, um, people keep on buying it, don't we? Why? Because we have no choice. There is no choice uh, but to be able to fill up our cars if we want to go anywhere, right? We can't uh, not fill up our cars and still expect to use them. And this is a bit like prayer. Prayer is like the fuel we need to live in the way of Jesus, okay? Um, think about it this way. What is the goal of the Christian life? I don't know if you ever thought of this. What's the goal of the Christian life? Uh, a teacher that I greatly admire called R.C. Sproul, he put it this way. He said that the goal of the Christian life is to live in a godly way through obeying Jesus. Now that's right. You can really boil it down to that. We could talk about all the aspects of that. We, we want to be with Jesus in new creation someday. Um, we want to be kind to our neighbors. We want to see people saved, all those kinds of things. But, but the way we do all those things, what it boils down to is living in a godly way through obeying Jesus. Because if we're not obeying Jesus, we're not being Christians, right? <laughs> that's pretty obvious. We are, by definition, followers of Jesus. And prayer nurtures our obedience to Jesus, doesn't it? The act of praying puts our hearts into a frame of mind that, that desires obedience. Because we don't, nor, we don't naturally desire obedience, do we? In fact, what do we naturally desire? We naturally desire the opposite obedience, of, of obedience, right? Uh, I can't tell you how many times, um, you know, 
Maybe Haley will speak to one of our kids, do something, and they just sit there and don't do it for no other reason than they desire disobedience. But in prayer, when we pray, something happens. You see, in prayer, we don't change God's mind. God changes us. If you think about praying for a specific situation or a problem, what happens is that through prayer, we come to see that situation, maybe not straight away. Maybe you're praying for the same situation for weeks or months or even years. But what happens through prayer is that, that we uh, come to see that, that situation, how God sees it. Somehow we receive, through the Holy Spirit working in us, a desire to approach that problem or that situation or our lives in general in a godly way, i.e. by obeying Jesus. And so if, if prayer nurtures our obedience to Jesus and, the, and obedience to Jesus is what the Christian life is, then prayer is vital, isn't it? And Jesus knew this. Jesus' life and ministry was based on prayer. And, and this is what we're going to focus on this morning, the prayer life of Jesus. And more specifically, why we need to be more like Jesus when it comes to prayer. In other words, what we're going to see this morning is that prayer should be as important to us as it was to Jesus. Prayer should be as important to us as it was to Jesus. Uh, in this passage that Hannah read, um, we see Jesus doing or on the verge of doing three pretty huge things, right? We've already seen Jesus have some pretty big days in, in his life already. But this one is up there, I think, with, with one of the most significant in his whole life on earth. In this section of Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. He heals a whole multitude of people. And then he preaches one of the most important sermons ever. So let's jump in. I'm, I'm going to kind of work our way through this just to remind us um, as we go through this. So let, let's read the first part of this again, verses um, uh, 13 to 16. He's, it says, And when day came, Jesus, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, would become, who became a traitor. Now, we usually think of Jesus uh, only having 12 disciples, don't we? We all talk about the 12 disciples, uh, and he did, but he had a lot more. Uh, a disciple it just means a follower learner, right? Someone who follows and, and learns from the example, like, a, like an apprentice kind of idea. And by this point, Jesus has gathered a lot of disciples. He's a teacher, he's a rabbi, and the people are following him around to, to learn from him. And it's from this big group of disciples that Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. So what's the difference? Well, an apostle is more than a disciple. So uh, all, uh, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Do you understand what I'm saying? The word apostle uh, means uh, like a representative or a messenger. So uh, maybe uh, me and Haley love watching like these old uh, historical kind of dramas on TV. We're watching one at the minute. Um, and, and it's this kind of idea. You've probably seen it in movies where like, you know, someone rides up on a horse and they have a message from the king. And in that moment, the king's not there, but they get to speak the words of the king. They, they, they have the voice of the king. This is like an apostle. The title Jesus gives to these 12 men means that they are commissioned by him to represent him as they spread his message. The apostles had the, the kind of Jesus' official seal of approval to be his representatives and speak on his behalf. 
And in this time, over the next few years on, on, on earth, this time that came after his uh, death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven was all training to become full apostles. And then after the day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks' time after Easter, they begin the real work of being Jesus' apostles. And he chose 12 of them, the same number as the tribes of Israel, to, to symbolize that the, the kingdom of God is the new and greater Israel, right? Um, not confined to, to one nation um, or one people group, but a kingdom that would spread and cover the whole world and include people from every nation. Now, if you think about these 12 guys, apart from Jesus himself, it's hard to think of 12 more influential people in the whole world. We would not be sitting in this room today if it were not for the 12 apostles. 11 of these guys, because uh, Luke, kind of, Luke doesn't, kind of, he's not like spoiler alert, he's just like, well, throw it in there at the beginning. Judas Iscariot becomes a traitor, right? <laughs> Uh, apart from these 11 guys, sorry, uh, and then after Judas is no longer with them, the Apostle Paul becomes the 12th Apostle. They would go on to change the face of the entire world. They would go to cross mountain ranges and oceans to spread the gospel as far as France and Turkey and Thomas. Remember Thomas who, who, who had to put his fingers in the wounds of Jesus to, 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 to reassure himself that Jesus had risen from the dead? Thomas actually went to India they planted churches and established the church across the known world. They became guardians of the message of Jesus. And, and some of them became authors of the Bible. They actually spoke the word of God. Most of them became martyrs for Jesus, dying rather than deny him. I was, just, I was reading stuff about Andrew. Because Andrew's not mentioned that much. And maybe it's because he shares my name. I'm interested in him. But um, Andrew, when he saw the cross that he'd be crucified on, Apparently, he was filled with joy, just filled with joy. He's like, yes, I get to die. I get to be crucified like my Lord. Incredible. And so choosing these 12 apostles was one of the most crucial parts of Jesus' ministry. Now look at verses 17 to 19. I don't know if I have these on the screen. Oh, I do have them on the screen. Good job, past me. Um, verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. He's been up the mountain, you see with a great crowd of his disciples, so loads of his disciples, his followers, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast, the Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So they're here for two things. They're here to, they're, they've come to hear him and to be healed. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. Now, we don't know how many people was in this crowd, but, but we do know it was a lot. Luke calls it a crowd and a multitude. There was a great crowd of his disciples, his follower learners, and there was a multitude that people, of people that came from all over the place. So Tyre and Sidon mentions are way up in the north in, in what is now modern-day Lebanon. And then there's people from Judea and Jerusalem uh, that are from uh, the way down in the south. People that come from the length and the breadth of the country to see Jesus. It's like when uh, Garth Brooks comes to Croke Park, like the Culchies from across Ireland, like the sand on Dublin. That's what's happening here. A huge crowd had come to hear Jesus and be healed by him. And Luke tells us something amazing. He says, look at verse 19 again. It says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. He healed them all. Jesus 
healed them all. The people had come from all the place to hear him and be healed by him, and no one went away disappointed. This has to be one of the biggest miraculous displays in Jesus' whole ministry. Most of the time we hear, him, uh, we hear of Jesus interacting with and, and healing and ministering to individuals. Like, remember Peter's mother-in-law? Or the, the man with leprosy? But here, Jesus heals a whole crowd of people. So he has chosen his 12 disciples. He's healed a multitude of people. And then in the rest of chapter 6, we see him preaching the Sermon on the Plain. Okay? This is what we'll be focusing on the next, uh, next Sunday and then the few weeks after Easter. We're going to take a break and do Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday separately. Uh, this sermon is very similar to the Sermon on Mount that we studied a few years ago, recorded in Matthew. And some scholars think that, that it's the same sermon and, and they're recorded in different ways by different gospel writers. But I actually think that it's probably more likely that this was kind of like a core message, right? Kind of like a stump speech, you know, like uh, you have, uh, you know, politicians would have. It's kind of like a core message that Jesus preached and he could have easily preached that to, to two different crowds, one up a mountain and one down in a level place. But whichever it is, this is the greatest teaching that anyone has ever given in history. Think of some of the great speeches in history. Remember uh, Churchill's, we will fight them on the beaches speech? Like, or, or Martin Luther King's, I have a dream. This message is more transformative than any other teaching ever. It's the basis, and I don't want to get into what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, but it's the basis of the actions and the morality of the church. In it, Jesus lays out what the kingdom is like and how we should live as his followers, what it means to be a, a fulfilled human. And it's through obeying this teaching of Jesus that the church has gone on to shape and influence culture and laws and education and all aspects of human life throughout history. This sermon is a huge deal. And so I think we can all agree that this is a big day for Jesus. He's appointed his 12 disciples. He's healing a multitude of people and he's preaching this hugely important sermon. It's a significant day. And yet, what I want to do uh, for the rest of our time is... is is to draw our attention to what, not what Jesus was doing on this day, but what he was doing the night before this day. Look at verse 12. It's on the screen. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. I have to say at this point that I am pretty convicted and have been all week. How do you prepare for a big days in your life? You got a big presentation tomorrow at work, or uh, you know it's just going to be a busy week coming up, and you've got so much to do. Uh, my guess is that it's not by praying all night. <laughs> Maybe it is. If that's you, can I please talk to you? Because I need to learn from you. But for most of us, when we get busy, or when we get overwhelmed, when we have a lot to do, prayer is usually way down the list, isn't it? Usually if we get busy, we're, we're, we're too busy to pray or we're too stressed to pray or we're too worried to pray. We're too distracted to pray. But this is a bit like driving down the road on your way to something important and the petrol light comes on, ding, which happens like every other day at the minute. And you think, well, I'm in too much of a hurry to stop for petrol, right? That doesn't make any sense because no matter how much of a hurry you're in, if you don't stop and fill up, you're not going to get there at all. Saying we're too busy 
to pray is like saying we're too busy to stop and fill up our cars when we run out of fuel. Martin Luther, uh, you might remember from history, the father of the uh, Reformation, he was once asked what he was doing that day, right? This is written down. And he responds by saying, someone's like, what have you got coming up today? And he's like, work. Work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. See, Luther knew the importance of putting petrol in the car. He wasn't going to get through the day without first filling up. And this is the example of Jesus that we see here. He goes off to the mountain to pray, and he continues to pray all night. In preparation for one of the biggest days of his whole ministry, Jesus didn't think to himself, well, better make sure I get the full eight hours tonight, right? Um, That's not the most important thing to him. He he could have chosen to be well-rested, go to bed early, to, to get up, have a shower, have a good breakfast and a cup of coffee. And sure, maybe over coffee, like flick through the Bible and, and maybe say a quick prayer for God to help him with that day. That's sometimes what my mornings look like. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Lord, help me today. The end. But Jesus didn't do this. Jesus instead, feeling the weight of responsibility and the magnitude of what God had called him to do that day and what God was doing in his life and the life of all these people, he spent the whole night in communion with the Father. For Jesus, being with the Father, because that's really what prayer is, was the most important thing. And it's out of this prolonged time spent with the Father, in prayer, in communion, in fellowship with God, that these really powerful and world-changing things happen. It's out of his time with the Father that the power of Jesus' ministry flows. You know, when I was reading this passage this week, I couldn't help notice the connection between verse 12 when he prays all night, and verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. This is something we see in Jesus' life a lot. To put it in, in perspective, we're only in chapter 6, feels like we're doing this a long time, we're in chapter 6 out of 24 chapters, right? And we've already seen Luke recording these times when Jesus goes off to pray twice. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 42. He's been pre- preaching and healing people all night, and he says, and when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. Chapter 5, verse 16, we see that Luke tells us he would often withdraw to desolate places to pray. This is something that Luke records over and over again. And Jesus would frequently take himself off to be with the Father. Because it was out of communion with the Father that the power of his ministry flowed. You see, for Jesus, doing good, preaching the gospel, helping the sick, caring for those in need, facing opposition, resisting temptation were all key features of his life. And when we follow him, these will be features of our lives too. Doing good, preaching the gospel, helping the sick, caring for those in need, facing opposition, resisting temptation. These will be features of our lives when we follow Jesus. And the key thing to notice is that Jesus didn't do any of these things without regularly praying and spending time with the Father. And so here's the million dollar question. Pause for effect. If Jesus' life and ministry was based on prayer, how much more should ours be? If Jesus' life and ministry was based on prayer, how much more should ours be? This can't be lost on us. If the eternal Son of God could not function as the man Jesus without depending on God in prayer, how much more essential is it for us? Do you see? 
Prayer was everything to Jesus. It was through dependent prayer that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. Jesus didn't have some supernatural power to not, not sin. He was human, just like us. But it was through dependent prayer that he was able to live a sinless life. It was through dependent prayer that Jesus gave himself over to those in need. To heal the sick, to speak truth, to cast out demons. It was through depending on God in prayer that Jesus went to the cross to be crucified. In John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. Imagine we could say that about our lives. And you see what this means? That even though Jesus was the eternal son of God, even though he created the entire universe, even though he is the alpha and omega, even though everything finds its beginning and end in him, he could not live his human life except through depending on God in prayer. And so how much more do we, weak, tempted, weary, hurting, tired, sinful people need to depend on God in prayer? What's so special about us that makes us think that we don't need to pray? Why do we feel that we can drive on an empty tank? Prayer needs to be as important to us as it was to Jesus. Um, since, since we started this series in Luke, we, we've, there's been a focus on reaching out to those in need, serving those in our community in need. It's been one of the key features of Jesus' ministry. And when I talk to a lot of you in our church, I get the feeling that there's a real desire. God's doing something there. And I think it's really important that we nurture that and, and, and fan that flame. Uh, there's a real desire to, to do this. We want to go to the poor. We want to serve our community. We want to care for those in need. We want to welcome the outcasts and the refugees. We want to share the, the message of Jesus and, and, and share the gospel with those who need him. And these are all great and good desires. These are the kind of things we want our church to be good at. Because like we saw last Sunday, we can't pretend to worship Jesus if, we're, if we don't care for those in need. But if we learn anything from the life of Jesus, it's that doing these things can't happen without being rooted and grounded in prayer. We can't, we can't be like Jesus if we don't do what Jesus did. You see what I'm saying? And if Jesus' ministry was based on prayer and communion with the Father, then ours needs to be too. Otherwise, we won't get very far. We might start off okay, sure, but eventually we'll run out of petrol. And, and to be honest, we might not even start off the journey at all because we haven't put any petrol in the tank to begin with. Throughout history, things happening in the church have always been because people have got together and prayed. Any big revivals throughout history. You know why they start? Because people got together and prayed. The abolition of slavery in Britain. You know how that began? People praying. Because it's in prayer that God changes our hearts, fuels our desire to obey Him, and then drives us out into the world to serve Him. And if we really want to serve those in need in South Belfast, then we really, if we really want to see people's lives changed by the power of Jesus, if we really want to see people move from death to life, and even as I say that, I know you all have people in your head who you want that to be, then we need to start praying. 
And, and please believe me, I'm preaching to myself and feel like a hypocrite. Uh, Jesus lived a life dependent on the Father, and he calls us to do the same. Um, listen to what he says to his disciples in John chapter 15. Uh, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, during the first lockdown, which was two years ago, mad, two years ago. Anyway, during the first lockdown, Haley started growing tomatoes and other stuff in our backyard. Uh, and last year, one of the tomato plants grew kind of in such a way where it had like two stems almost, with one coming off the other one. And, and so in order to get the main stem to, to grow uh, and, and, and have tomatoes, you have to cut this other one off so it's not, you know, sucking up all the nutrients. You know what I'm saying? I'm not a gardener, but that's how I think of it. <laughs> Um, and so I cut this second branch off the vine, right? Now, when I cut that off, it didn't keep growing. <laughs> it didn't start producing really good tomatoes. No, it weathered and died. We, we threw it in the brown bin. And Jesus is saying, this is like us. If we are not connected to and dependent on him, the vine, then we won't produce any fruit. In fact, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say well, you might grow small tomatoes. No, he doesn't. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, you can do something or a wee bit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And usually it's when, only when we get to the end of our tether that we realize we can do nothing without him, isn't it? When a situation so huge comes over the horizon and we say, Lord, I need you. But if we're gonna produce fruit, if we're gonna grow as a healthy church, if we're going to flourish in obeying him, if we're going to reach out to those in need in our community, then we need to be dependent on him. Prayer needs to be as important to us as it was to Jesus because without prayerfully dependent on him, we will wither and die. If we're going to be a flourishing church, we need to be a praying church. Now, before we finish, there are three things from uh, Jesus' example that can teach us a lot about prayer because I know that for a lot of us, we don't even know how to begin sometimes, right? Um, maybe we're afraid of praying. Maybe uh, it's intimidating or mysterious and difficult. And hopefully these three things can help us. And I challenged my inner Presbyterian minister because they all start with P. Uh, place, purpose, and perseverance. Let's look at verse 12 one more time. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. First thing we see is that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And this is the place of prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is, of course, something that we can and should do all the time, right? No matter where we are or what we're doing. Like, so when I talk to my kids, I tell them that, that prayer is just talking to God. We ask Finley, talk to God. Thank him for what he's done. Tell him for what you need. That's what Finley will tell you. And we can talk to God no matter where we are or what we're doing. In fact, Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we should pray without ceasing. And I love this idea. I love that we can be in constant communication with our Father. It's brilliant. And I find that I often, I most often do this when I'm driving a car, when I'm riding my bike. Um, and you can do it just when you're out and about on your day. It's just as easy as talking to God about whatever is going on in your life at that moment. And that's a really good thing to do. 
And we should do that. But here we see Jesus intentionally moving himself to a place where he can have focus on communion with the Father. This is a time and place set apart for him to be intimate with the Father. So he goes to a mountain and pray. And Luke tells us time and time again that Jesus would position himself away from the distractions and the busyness of his life so that he could spend time with God. And it's important for us to follow this example. Because I don't need to tell you guys, but life is complicated and it's busy. And there's a thousand things that need our attention. And it's so important to take time out with God and to bring to him all the things that we need to do. So much of our lives is about getting stuff done, isn't it? <laughs> I don't, maybe, maybe that's just me, but I feel like so much of our life is about getting stuff done. And, and we need these times when we escape with Jesus. Last week I was quoting Matthew 11 when, when uh, uh, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Uh, if you've ever read the message version of the Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson, who's actually now in heaven, uh, he, he, he translated the whole Bible. And this is the way he puts that verse. He, he, he puts it as Jesus saying, get away with me. Isn't that lovely? Come away with me, Jesus says. We need the times when we can escape with Jesus. John Stark um, has written a really helpful book about prayer. It's called The Possibility of Prayer. Oh, that's another P, just realized that. <laughs> It's called The Possibility of Prayer. And I rec really recommend this book if you struggle with prayer. Um, I know that some of you have read it as well. But he says it this way. Christ is personally and really present with us when we pray. So we need a meeting place where we know we can give attention to the one thing, not a dozen small things. Because that's how we most of the time are, isn't it? We're giving attention to a dozen small things all at once. So we need a, a time and a place where we can give attention to the one thing. There was a reason why Jesus took himself off to places of prayer, and so should we. Now, it might not be going off to the mountains every week. If you can do that, go for it, because life won't always be that simple, okay? If you can do that, then go, great, go and do it. Sometimes you do have times when you get to go off to the beach or off to the mountains or whatever it is. But for most of us, this place of prayer is just any time or space carved out in the week when we can spend time with Jesus. So maybe it's taking the dog for a walk. Maybe it's going to your room and turning your phone off. Definitely recommend turning your phone off when you're praying. Maybe it's going to the park and sitting under the tree or whatever it is for you. Let's try and find ways that we can find a place the place of prayer, that time and space carved out just for you and Jesus. And listen, this is definitely going to change through the seasons of life uh, because some of you are in the position where you can go off to nature and spend lots of time with God there, and that's great. But some of you are in the season of life where you go from a busy job to being busy at home with kids, and then you're just knackered and wiped out. So the place of prayer will look very different for all of us and at different times of, of life. But here's, I, I just realized this is Mother's Day and this is a story about a mother. And um, I didn't plan that, but there you go. This story of John and Charles Wesley's mom. This is back in the 1700s, right? This woman had 10 children, 10. I mean, that, that's too many for anybody, bless her. Um, 10, <laughs> um, I'm one of five and that felt like a crowd a lot. Um, we have two, and that feels like I cried a lot. Um, and in the middle of the day, what she would do, so she'd be busy um, uh, looking after the 10 kids, 
But in the middle of the day, she would sit at the kitchen table and she would pull her apron over her head and just to pray. And the kids knew that's mom's prayer time. And they knew not to disturb her. In the middle of a busy day, she found that place of prayer by putting an apron over her head. This was her way of going to the mountain. She just wanted to be with Jesus. With 10 kids, you just need to be with Jesus, right? Um, this is how she found, she carved out time to spend with Jesus. What an example she is. And John and Charles, whenever they were, uh, went on, they both had huge preaching ministries and they used to talk about their mom as their, um, their example of prayer. So if this busy woman in the 1700s can find a, a place of prayer in a simple way like this, then, then maybe so can we. So that's the place of prayer, the need for that place and space. Um, next is being purposeful in prayer. So you notice in, in verse 12 again, um, it says that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, okay? There was a real purposefulness in Jesus' actions here. I don't know about you, but when I read these verses of Jesus going off to the mountain or withdrawing from the crowd or going into the wilderness, uh, I kind of read it as like, he probably needs a break, <laughs> you know? Um, if I had a crowd of people following me around all the time, like asking for stuff and needing stuff from me, I would definitely just want to get away from people all the time. Uh, but remember, Jesus didn't think the way we think. He was sinless. So he wasn't frustrated or fed up with people. He never put his own needs above the needs of others. He didn't get fed up. And so when Jesus withdrew like he does here, he does it to pray. The purpose of his actions here is to connect with the Father. It wasn't to get his head shard from all the people. He was purposeful in praying because he loved people. And he knew that being with the Father allowed him to then give himself to the people. Jesus was purposeful about his prayer life. And, and I have to suspect that this is the biggest challenge for most of us when it comes to prayer, isn't it? Pro probably all of us pray spontaneously. As and when things happen in life. Usually when something comes up unexpected, we're like, Lord, please help me with this, you know. Um, and that's good, and we should do that. But if we're following the example of Jesus who lived his life depending on God in prayer, then we will be purposeful about going to pray. This is why we have a time of prayer before our gatherings on Sunday. Not because it's what we're supposed to do, but because we want to be purposeful, just like Jesus was about seeking God, thanking him for what he's done, and asking him for what we need. We want our gatherings to flow from time spent with the Father. So, uh, if you, if you want to join in that, like we, we pray from 10 a.m. to 10, 15, 15 minutes every Sunday morning. That's one easy space. You're going to be here anyway. That's one easy way that you can purposefully go to a place of prayer. This is why we're also purposeful about gatherings of prayer as a church. And for the last couple of years through COVID and stuff, it's been on Zoom and now we're getting back to meeting in person. Why? Because churches are meant to have prayer meetings? No. Because we want to be purposeful about depending on God, just like Jesus was. I can't just drive my car and hope that when it runs out of fuel that I'm beside a filling station. That does not seem like a wise strategy. I have to be purposeful and intentional about going to get fuel. And if we are to live lives that follow Jesus, in obedience to Him, 
going to those in need, resisting temptation, facing opposition, then we need to be purposeful in prayer. So that's place, that's purpose. And the final one is perseverance. Let's look at verse 12 one last time. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. I can't remember the last time I stayed up all night. I remember a couple of times back in my student days when I stayed up all night because I thought the best time to do an assignment was the night before it was due. Um, also remember a few nights staying up all night, just hanging out with friends and, and, and chatting. But it hasn't been for a long, long time. But here Jesus stays up all night praying. Like This is astonishing. Jesus prays all night. And Luke is very careful about his words. He says Jesus continues all night in prayer. And this literally means that Jesus was persevering with energy. That's what this means. We sometimes wrongly assume that Jesus had some special like link to the Father that meant that he didn't have to put any energy into praying. But that's not true. Jesus was fully human. And as a human man, he had to put the same effort into prayer that we do. Jesus persevered in prayer. He knew that the next day he was going to choose his 12 apostles. And he needed to pray to discern God's wisdom. Lord, who should they be? Lord, a multitude are going to need healing and care from me. I need your strength. Lord, I have to preach this message that's going to influence the whole world. Lord, I need your wisdom. Give me the words to say. So he continues, he perseveres. And so often we're, we're just prone to lose heart and give up in prayer, aren't we? Maybe we go through seasons of being in good habits of praying. And then after a while we fall out of the habit and start relying on our own strength again. But the lesson of Jesus is that we need to persevere. Like prayer is not just a one-time thing. Like we were going to get diesel the other day and, and uh, Abigail goes, but we already got diesel. <laughs> Like you don't just get it once, that'd be great, wouldn't it? You just fill up once and that's you forever. That's not how it works. We need to keep going back time and time again and filling up. Jesus didn't just persevere in, in prayer this one night and that did him. No, he prayed right throughout his whole life. And if Jesus did that, then how much more do we need to persevere in prayer? Prayer needs to be as important for us as it was for Jesus. And in his example, we see him going to the place of prayer, being purposeful in prayer and persevering in prayer. <laughs> now listen, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh great, <laughs> another thing I have to do, another list of things that you want me to do to be a good Christian. Weren't you talking last Sunday about how Jesus has come to give us rest and you're adding another thing to the list of things I have to do? Well, my intention, and I don't think Jesus' intention is ever for us to feel like we're being told off. So let me say this. Prayer is not a chore. It's an amazing gift. Amazing gift. Think about it. God could have just left us to it, right? He could have sent Jesus, died on the cross, saved us, and then said, right, well, get on with your lives and I'll see you in heaven someday. He could have done that. He didn't. God has made himself known to us, we can have intimacy with him. Isn't that amazing? The God of creation desires to have intimacy with us. He desires to be close to us and have communion with us. And it's such a great gift. And, and if you're anything like me, you usually just never even take the wrapping paper off it. 
shouldn't think of prayer as a chore, but a gift. John Stark, again, in that book about prayer, he says, prayer is not possible because we have somehow made ourselves worthy of God's attention, but because God has made himself known to us. And if this gift of communion and intimacy with the Father is available to us, why would we not be purposeful about getting it? We need to come to the Father, and we get to come to the Father. The amazing thing is that when we come to prayer, and we come to God in prayer, we come to spend time with Jesus in prayer, that we, we, it's not another busy thing to do. We actually do find that rest for our lives. We find rest for our souls. Yes, we have to, have to be purposeful and make effort to gather to pray or take time out of whatever it is we're doing. But in that, we find rest. I think about spending time with my wife. There's nothing I love doing more in life. Spending time, just the two of us, enjoying each other's company and being in each other's presence. And this is how Jesus feels about spending time with you. When I had my mini sabbatical back last year, I was maybe on like, uh, I had like a couple of days cycling left and uh, a friend texted me and he just said, I can't imagine how much Jesus is enjoying spending time with you. We don't think that way, do we? We think I have to pray, better go pray. Jesus is dying to spend time with us. Jesus thinks, yes, I got to spend time with you today. That's what Jesus loves you. And the other thing about it is, sometimes for me and Haley to spend time together, it does take a bit of effort, right? Um, maybe it takes a bit of planning. Maybe you have to get babysitters or make arrangements. But whatever it is, it's never not worth it. It's always life-giving and joyful, and same with our prayer, we're purposeful about making it happen. But when we do, we find intimacy with Jesus. We find rest for our souls. So let's not think about prayer as something we have to do, but something we get to do. Yes, it's, it's vital for our lives. And yes, it's a gift that God gives us. God wants to spend time with you. He's made himself known to you. And he has paid the ultimate cost so that he can be in relationship with you. Jesus died on the cross to win us to himself, right? That's why he died, to win us. We are the people he has bought with his own blood. And, and prayer is not a chore. It's one of the ongoing benefits of his sacrifice. An amazing gift. Just pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us as a church family into a place where prayer is, import, is as important for us as it was for Jesus because we need to and because we get to. And I pray that we all can find rest in Jesus as we pray more. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for that gift of prayer. You haven't left us alone. Uh, Father, I just pray that, I'm sorry if anything I've said today has felt heavy or not restful. Lord, you, you don't want prayer to be not restful. You want us to find our rest in you, to have intimacy with you. And in that, just thank you for what you've done for us and tell, and tell you what, what we need. Lord, we need to learn how to pray. Teach us to pray. Lord, we want to be a praying people. We know that we, ha we can't do anything except in you. Help us to depend on you. Help us to rely on you. And thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, giving yourself up to die on the cross, which means we can have access to you, intimate with you, be close to you.
I really ask this morning you'd turn us into a praying people. It feels like if we're not doing that, there's something wrong and, and, we, and we want to be close to you, Lord Jesus. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to come to the communion table again, the Lord's table, like we do every Sunday. And, and when we do this, uh, we're proclaiming uh, to ourselves and to each other uh, that Jesus died for us so that he could save us and win, him to, win, win us to himself. And one of the most notable prayer times that Jesus had was in, in the garden on the night before he died. Um, and we're going to look at this on, on Good Friday. But in that, in that uh, garden, we see Jesus on the ground in tears, sweating drops of blood, asking the Father over and over again, if there's any possibility, this task of giving himself up could be taken away from him. And through this time of prayer, and through this time of communion with the Father, we see that Jesus submits to the Father's will. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so in those words, Jesus is saying, I will pay the ultimate cost for the people I love. I will allow my body to be broken. I will shed my blood for those I love. And so today, Jesus invites us to come to the table again and remember and declare his love for us. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Incredible thing we get to do. He says, come and smell and taste and touch and hear and see how much I love you. How much it costs me to have intimacy with you. And so when you, when you eat the bread and drink the wine together this morning, um, just say to each other, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Um, and, and in that, remember that Jesus loves you. So let's come to the table. Um, there are non-alcoholic versions on, on this side, so if that's for you, take those. Um, just take them back to your chairs and, and take this meal together. Take the bread and take the wine. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we just ask that you wouldn't come forward for this. This is just for people who are trusting in Jesus, who have intimacy uh, with him through what Jesus has done. Um, so let's stand, and we're going to sing. And as we sing, when you're ready, come forward and celebrate what we have through Jesus. heart now to Jesus come you anxious soul now and see there is perfect love and comfort for your tears rest here in his wondrous peace and oh the goodness the goodness of Jesus Jesus sad.